Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In my life. Hopefully you feel the same. It's brought us a long way. Amen. We're going to just pray one more time. We're going to preach here in a minute. But let's just pray again before we go to the word tonight. Hallelujah. Jesus, we worship you, God. We thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing in our midst tonight. I pray, God, that you would continue to speak to us through your word. I pray, God, that you would challenge us. God, do it. Something in our hearts tonight, I pray, God. We give everything over to you the rest of this service, God. It's all yours. Do whatever it is you want to do, yes. God. We surrender to you. Yes. In your name, Jesus. Let your will be done, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. You can be seated if you like. <clears throat> um. Prayer. What is it? by Sister Thetis Tenny. I don't know if I said her name right or not. I've never heard anyone actually say it. Okay. Prayer is breath to the spirit. It is a lifeline to the soul. It is a tether to the eternal. Prayer is communication between creature and creator. It is the eye into the invisible. It is the ear to the unspoken. Prayer is the access into the heavenlies. It is the activator of the miraculous. Prayer is an enlightenment to the mind. It is understanding to the emotions. Prayer is man's greatest opportunity. It is man's daily challenge. It is man's amazing possibility. Prayer, what is it? Prayer is the mystery of all mysteries. It is as complex as creation. It is as simple as a child's talk. It is the most powerful power available to man. It is more piercing than a laser. It is the seed of all things possible. It is a finality of man's ability. Prayer is man plugged into God. It is God working through man. Prayer is creative, destructive, cohesive, dividing, awe-inspiring, frightening, possible and probable. Prayer is bigger than can be imagined. It is faster than a beam of light. It is endless impossibilities. It can be more concentrated than an atom. Prayer is forceful, tender, shattering, healing, complex, and simple. Prayer has never been totally understood, completely explained, or utterly exhausted. It is beyond the wisest man's comprehension. It can be effectively used by a child. All the words ever known cannot adequately describe it, yet it can be reduced to a single word. Every language can speak it, only God can understand it. Practice it and find peace. Believe in it and find faith. Let it consume you and really live. Prayer, the unimaginable, incomprehensible, obtainable connection between the finite and the infinite, the earthbound and the almighty who fills the universe. Prayer, God's gift to man. Use it, engage it, revel in it, enjoy it, reap from its riches, sing it, read it, think it, speak it. The Bible says men ought always to pray. The Bible is a book of prayers. There are over 600 recorded prayers. There are long prayers, short prayers. There are desperate prayers and prayers of devotion and thanksgiving. There are requests and rebukes and repentance. There are prayers of destruction, life-giving prayers and multiple intercessions. There are prayers from a lonely woman, a fearful child, a frightened fisherman, a patriarch, an apostle, a prophet, and a disciple. Leaders prayed, nations prayed, Friends prayed, groups prayed, individuals prayed, sinners prayed, and saints prayed. Jesus 
prayed. Men ought always to pray. And I bet you'd have no idea what we're going to talk about tonight. But I'd like to talk to you a little bit about prayer tonight and walk you through a story in the book of Acts. And so far this year, we've spent a few sermons already focusing on together and subsequently kind of walking through the first bit of the book of Acts and looking at the early church and comparing it to us. We've looked at the unity of the church in the upper room and how they tarried in prayer together and the promise was poured out on them together and they learned together, they ate together, they fellowshiped together and the result was God moved on them together. And then we look at how they reacted to the first bit of persecution. They stood together, they accepted the will of God together and they prayed for boldness to continue what they were called to do together and the result was, wait for it, God moved on them together. And today we're going to look at what happened when some internal conflict arose in the church. And I'm not going to act like this is the greatest message I've ever prepared or preached. But there's a principle in here that if we get a hold of it, it could change everything. So Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. We did a whole series before on murmuring, which nobody murmured about, of course, and it was very well received amongst the people. But every time murmuring is mentioned in the Bible, it is an indicator of a deeper underlying issue. Murmuring and complaining and grumbling is always seen as a negative thing in the Word of God. It's never a good thing. It's never they murmured positively. They murmured about the good things. It's always they're complaining and uh, causing problems. But the church in this story, they're starting to grow and people are, are coming in and more disciples are joining and then the murmuring starts. There's a bit of a language divide here. Oh, I missed the verse. Philippians, sorry, in case you're wondering. Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. So we shouldn't be murmuring in case you missed that part. I didn't say it. But murmuring is, uh, it's always something negative, focusing on the negative. It seems that no matter how good things are, how much God is moving, whether he's delivering Israel for Egypt, or he's adding to the church daily, such as should be saved, someone somewhere is going to find something to complain about. This is a good start, I know, I'm doing good. That's starting off lately. The church, the story, it's growing. People are coming in, disciples are joining, and then they start to murmur because there's a, a bit of a, a divide in the language. And something like that would never happen in our country. There would never be any division about language. A group who speaks one language would never accuse a group who speaks another of favoritism or being against them or anything like that. I know that would never happen, and we would have no idea what that would be like. But the Greek speakers, they start murmuring against the Hebrew speakers, and they say, you guys aren't taking care of our widows like you're taking care of yours. How dare you? And the thing about murmuring is it doesn't even need to be true. The Bible doesn't say if this was happening or not. It just says that there was some murmuring. And if I learned anything about leadership in my many years on this planet, it's that people are going to one complain and murmur just about over just anything they can think of 
And two, people are always going to accuse you of favoritism. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I used to get that at McDonald's a lot. You give them all the good shifts. You let them do this or that or whatever. Yeah, because they show up. I'm not going to schedule you when you <laughs> ever come. Amen. And you disappear. Amen. That's not favoritism. That's just not being foolish. It's not favoritism when someone shows that they're faithful and dedicated and they're rewarded for that. That's the same with the church. People like to say similar things. Well, whatever. We're not going to go any further with that. But most of the original disciples at this time were Hebrew speakers. They were Jewish. And I'm not sure how fluent they all were in, in Greek. I imagine there was some different level of Greek um, competency amongst the disciples. Um, even if it was one of the official type languages, it doesn't always mean that everyone's fluent or overly comfortable in that language. Um, I'll use Africa as an example because every tribe, every region, every area has its own language. But there's an official language for most of the countries and most of the times it's either French or English for most of the vast majority of the countries. And I've told you stories about how I went and preached in French and the guy had no idea what I was saying. had no idea how to interpret it. Because you, you go to different places in the country, and even though everyone knows it, they don't speak it as well. They're not as comfortable with it. So there's this sort of divide. And I imagine that's what it was like back then, because the Roman Empire has just taken everyone over, and they had a, like Latin and Greek were sort of the official languages. But not everyone's going to be fluent in that. You're not using it every day if you're not dealing with the government-type peoples. If you're just out fishing and selling to your local buddies, you're not using that so much. And so there's... In my head, it's something like that. It's most likely not a purposeful neglect. It's probably some sort of language barrier type of a deal between the disciples and these Greek widows. And maybe uh, maybe the Greeks didn't understand Hebrew and they felt left out. If you've ever been around someone who's speaking a different language, whether they're leaving you out or not, it's a very uncomfortable thing. Um, it's not the most pleasant feeling. You feel You feel neglected. And you feel ignored or left out. And so these Greeks, they start murmuring about the Hebrews. So, so far the church, by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, they've overcome some external conflict. But now we see the first sort of internal conflict that they're faced. The honeymoon stage is over. And we've had these internal conflicts ever since. But Acts chapter 6, verse 2, it says, And the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them. So they called everyone together and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now this part may offend some people, but that's okay. The twelve disciples, they call a meeting. And basically what they say is, We don't have time to deal with this. <laughs> oh, oh, I know. I know. Can you believe that? What, what would you do if I said that? <laughs> yeah. That'd be fun. Amen. I'll do it someday. <laughs> we'll see. Well, the disciples said our job is to teach and to preach. They said we don't have time to serve tables. And now <laughs> this part, if this happened today, would no doubt offend someone. I'm glad Brother Newell's here to at least be on my side. 
And this part may get a little uncomfortable. <laughs> if I got up here and said, I don't got time to do any of these other things. Well, who do they think they are? They're too good to serve. Why are preachers so lazy? They only have to work one day a week. Bunch of bums. <laughs> How dare they? <laughs> That's what people think. The real question that I have is, why were the disciples in charge of it anyway? Why did the Greeks take care of their own widows? Why are they pawning this off on the disciples? Why didn't anyone say, hey, here's a need, why don't we help? Because peoples is peoples. <laughs> and I don't know if people realize until you preach how much time and effort goes into preaching or teaching or anything like that. Even, even Sunday school, they give you a curriculum and you, you got it, but it still takes you hours and hours and hours. You don't just get up there and start rambling. Well, some people do, but you can tell that. There's prayer, there's meditating on the word, there's trying to figure out sometimes what the Bible's trying to say to us. We're trying to word that in a different way. And there's there's studying, there's reading, there's organizing, there's preparing notes, and sometimes there's sometimes when you're trying to do it, nothing seems to come, and all you can do is wait. Just waiting on God. And it takes a lot of mental and spiritual effort. And to, to do that multiple times a week, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of time it takes. Some people say, well, just open your mouth and let God speak. But I found that he often only uses what you've put in there. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so you got to be putting stuff in there. And that takes time as well. Amen. If you haven't studied, if you don't know the Bible, if not much is going to come out or things that come out aren't going to be true. So if we're a midweek Bible study, for example, it usually takes me at least two days working pretty regularly to get it together, and then I would make a handout and do the slides and all that, which takes more time. And these guys, they did it just about every day. And I'm not complaining about doing that because that's my job and that's my responsibility, and I'm fine with that. But the thing about time is, is what the disciples' point was, the thing about time is, is there's only so, only so much time. And I have a point too, and we'll get there eventually, but we've got to go through this first. But well, the disciples' point was, if, <laughs> if we have to spend all this time, as I said, waiting tables, not that it was beneath them. These guys had fed 5,000 people in one day. You want to talk about a mealtime rush? These guys fed over 5,000 in one day and then gathered up the leftovers. They cleaned up the table afterwards. These guys knew how to serve. They did it. They've done this sort of thing. But they said, if we have to spend our time doing these things first, and these things that really, to be honest, other people could do, and other people are more than capable of doing, then they said, our, our preaching and our teaching is going to suffer. Because one, they're not going to have as much time to pray and study and prepare. And two, they're not going to have as much time to preach and teach either. They're running all over Tarnation delivering goodies to everyone. They're delivering cookies to widows all over the place. They're not going to have any time. Riding their camels or donkeys, whatever it was. 
But they're running around handing out groceries all over the city. Time's going to get away from you. You ever run errands and you're like, what happened? <laughs> Where'd the day go? And we don't do the distributing groceries so much like that anymore. But there are all sorts of things that can be done around the church by just about anyone. Amen. Cleaning, vacuuming, dusting, taking out the garbage, making sure the heat's right. Because I'm not doing a good job of that. <laughs> Getting things set up. We tear down and set up this sanctuary more than we should. Making slideshows, bulletins, shoveling, sanding, painting, decorating, calling people, visiting, supporting, praying, even teaching Bible studies. These are all things that just about anybody can do. And I can already hear the murmuring starting. And they murmured in Acts. And that's fine. But these, these are the facts. And this is what the church said. This is what the disciples said. This is what the twelve are saying. They said, if we have to spend all of our time doing the, this other thing, and they said the main thing that we're called to do by God is going to suffer. It wasn't that they couldn't serve widows, they were doing it. It wasn't that, they, that it was below them, they, they could do it and they had been doing it. But you'll find that the more stuff you do, the quality of the work goes down. And apparently how they, they've been doing it wasn't good enough, according to the people anyway. <laughs> they started complaining, which is what people like to do. We'll get to the, the good part here in a minute. We gotta get to this. Everybody knows how to do your job better than you. I don't know if you found that out. You can be an electrician. Everybody knows how to do it better than you. You know? Everybody knows how to preach and pastor better than the pastor. Everybody knows how to run a restaurant or a store better than the people running them. How do you run into that? What do you? You should know better than that. You should be able to predict the future. Everyone knows how to run the healthcare departments better than the people doing it, or the province, or the country, or whatever. You know how to run the district or the camp better. You know how to do the Sunday school better than the people doing it. Yeah, I know. And basically, when this was brought up, the disciples turned it around on the people. And they said, all right, you do it then. We've been doing it. You can do it. And they said in verse 3, we'll get to the prayer bit here, but verse 3, they said, Wherefore, brethren, they said, Look you out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And so they said, We're going to take seven guys, and the only prerequisites for these, these men is that they need to be full of the Holy Ghost and have wisdom. We're not going to put any dummies over this. They gotta be they gotta be wise, and they gotta have the Holy Ghost. And we're gonna put them in charge of it. And it's through this process of the disciples saying, you know what? Somebody else can do this. I don't need to do everything. Somebody else can step up and someone else can do this. It's through this process that a man named Stephen is chosen. And it's through the life and martyrdom of Stephen that I believe Paul is affected and later converted, and the rest is history. But we don't get Stephen. We don't get that whole story if the disciples continue to be in charge of the food distribution. It's through them taking their hands off it. It's through them pointing or prioritizing what it is that God has called them to do and not burning themselves out or having to do everything. That Stephen gets this chance. And believe it or not, God has called 
every one of us to do something in his kingdom. We've been talking Wednesday about harmony. And there's, there's a list of gifts in Romans chapter 12 of things that we can do, that anyone can do. And one of those is serving. God has called us to do something. We are as people, as children, as servants, and so we should be serving. Do you know when people fall into sin, it's when they're not doing anything. Think of David and Bathsheba. There was a time when all the other kings went out to war. David said, I'm going to stay home this time. I'm going to take a break. That's when he fell into one of his greatest sins. God has called us and given us a job, and if we're not going to do it, we give the enemy space to work instead of giving God space to work because we all have the same amount of time in the day, and if we aren't giving any to God, it's going somewhere else. And when someone doesn't do what they should or could do, it puts more pressure on the others to do that. That's getting real, yeah. The ones that do things, they're all amen to me. I don't know why I said that. Because I don't know where to go with the rest of the sentence. The rest of you are going to get on board. When someone doesn't do what they could or should, you think we're a body? If one of your body parts doesn't work as well as the others, everything has to overcompensate for that. We've said this before. If your leg doesn't work as well, the other one has to overcompensate. Now you're limping and you're leaning and your body's going the wrong way. The things aren't going the way that it should, and it kind of messes everything up. But that's not the main point. We're almost to the main point. We'll get through this bit here. But he says in verse 4, And we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. All right, here's the, here's the main point. We got through that awkward stuff. This is what the disciples decided. They came with a complaint. They said, the widows, they're out. You're, you're ignoring our widows. You guys don't care about us. And they said, okay, someone else can do this? And they said, we're going to give ourselves to two things. We're going to give ourselves to prayer, and we're going to give ourselves to the ministry of the Word. We're going to give ourselves to prayer and the thing that God has called us to do. And the, uh, this problem came along to the early church, and it had great potential to distract the disciples, to distract the church, and to hinder growth and cause division. But what happened? The disciples made a conscious decision to prioritize the right things. And those two things were prayer and what God has called them to do. And that's what I'd like us to focus on. When the disciples were presented with this issue, what did they say? They said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. They said, it doesn't make sense that this thing should take us away from the word, right? It doesn't make sense that we should do this other thing that we aren't called to do, that anybody else can do, that someone else can step up and they can help. We've been doing it, but someone else can come along and do it, and we can give that to somebody else, right? And here's my point. They did not mention prayer there. They did not. They mentioned the word. They said, this is going to take us away from the word, right? What did they say? There's no reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. There's no mention of prayer, but when they address the issue, they mention prayer and ministering the Word. Why? Because prayer in the early church was a given. Prayer had priority. Nothing was going to take the place of prayer 
in their life. Nothing was going to trump prayer. The widows could go ahead and starve. They were going to pray. There was nothing that was going to stop them from praying. Sorry, that probably came out wrong. But there was nothing that was going to stop them from praying. Nothing was going to be more important than prayer. They could take time away from preparing the word. They could take time away from preaching. But prayer was always going to be there. Nothing was going to cause them not to pray. They said the word is going to stop. The word is going to suffer. The studying and the teaching and the preaching, they're going to suffer. We're not going to be able to do it as well or as effectively, but prayer, that's not going to be touched. No one's going to take my prayer away. You want to know how to be effective. You want to know how to be powerful. You want to know how to be united or unstoppable. We need to prioritize prayer. That's why the early church was so effective and powerful and united and unstoppable. They prioritized prayer. We need to prioritize prayer in our own lives, prayer at church, praying for each other, prayer before church, during church, and after church, coming to the altar whether you need it or not. Create that opportunity for someone else to come. Prayer was a given in the early church, and for us, it's often an afterthought. We will pray if we have the time. We will pray if I remember or if I think about it, if it fits our schedule, if someone asks us to, if we have a crisis or if there's an urgent need or if the sermon moves us enough, then we will pray. And that is one of the main differences between the early church and us. They couldn't live without it, and we cannot fit it in. Growing up, we went to the altar all the time, no matter what. We went and we prayed. You could, the preacher could get up there and preach about being delivered from homosexuality or something like that, and everyone would go to the altar, whether we were, we needed it or not. Why? Because it's so much easier for someone else to come when we go, when we create that atmosphere. Why on earth would I, as a sinner, go to the front of the church to pray when the people who are part of the church don't. How would I even know to? When that crazy guy gets up there and he says, the altar's open, I don't even know what an altar is. How is it open? What does that mean? How do I know to do it? Who's going to help me pray? Who's going to show me when I get there? I'm just going to stand there and look silly by myself while everyone looks at me? I learned how to pray by watching and listening to others, by having people pray for me. And pray with me by listening to these men that would come alongside me and pray with me. I learned how to pray. And people showing me. Prayer needs to be a priority in the church or we aren't going to go anywhere. The early church was faced with this problem that had a great potential for distraction and great potential for division and great potential for disorder. And they overcame this with this attitude. We're going to keep prayer as a priority. And we're going to focus on the thing that God has called us to do, the thing that we're gifted in. And I'm worried that sometimes we don't do either. The enemy tries to cause division with distractions, get us focused on the wrong thing. And we see other churches all caught up in whatever the flavor of the day is. We get caught up in the, the politics or this identity stuff that's going on in social justice or whatever's trending online. And we want pastors to preach and talk about whatever's going on in the news. But the early church leaders said, no, we're going to pray and we're going to minister the word. And we're going to serve in what it is that Jesus has called us to do. And if we could just do those two things, if we could just pray and we could just serve the church, my goodness, what could happen? 
If the same sort of spirit could get a hold of the 21st century church, my goodness, we couldn't contain what he'd be able to do. But we allow ourselves to be so distracted by all these other things and our priorities and our focus is messed up. Prayer is no longer a priority. Serving is no longer a priority. We come to church and we get what we can and we leave. And if we don't get it, we go online in the afternoon and find somewhere else where we can. It's all about what I can get. The early church was, what can I give? Mm. Amen. We can act like the Greeks in the story. Hey, look at me. Look at this issue. What are you going to do about this? Can you fix this? Why don't you deal with this thing? Why Why don't you work on this? Why don't you do this or that? And I'm not saying that we don't have to legitimize issues or things that are going on. That's not what I'm saying. Because if the Greek widows were not being fed, that is a genuine issue. But what I'm saying is we cannot allow these issues and these other things to distract us from what it is that God has for us. And what it is that God is asking of us. And that is simple. Pray and serve. Two things. Pray and serve. And if we can make these our priorities, the church is so much better off. We are so much stronger and united and powerful. There's power in prayer. And there's power in service. But if all we want to do is murmur and complain and point out the issues and be distracted, then we can't be surprised when the power is lacking. Well, I know why. How I know this works, this is what happened. They picked seven guys, and these men were full of the Holy Ghost. These were guys who could pray. You don't get full of the Holy Ghost if you don't know how to pray. You don't get full of the Holy Ghost by never speaking to them. We don't know what happens to the other six of them, but one of them, Stephen, he knows how to pray. And he serves with everything in him. In verse six or verse eight, it says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Through him completely selling out to these two things, God started moving. He started to heal people. He started doing miracles and wonders. All kinds of supernatural things started to follow Stephen. He wasn't the pastor. Stephen wasn't a preacher. Stephen wasn't a missionary. Stephen wasn't a teacher. Stephen worked in a food bank. He served widows. He worked in a kitchen. That's what Stephen did. He was meals on wheels before it was cool. That's what Stephen did. He worked in a food bank. God called him to do one thing. Distribute food. And be full of the Holy Ghost. That's all he had to do. He saturated the one thing with the Holy Ghost and God took over. Oh, it's just teaching Sunday school. It's nothing serious. You do that and you saturate it with prayer. Those kids are going to notice. You can receive the Holy Ghost in Sunday school. I've told you this story many times. I got the Holy Ghost. I was nine years old. The last night of our, our youth week, I think it was maybe Sunday night, and the, the same night two other people received the Holy Ghost as well. One of them was a girl the same age as me. And that Friday uh, of that week, she had another girl who came to her, our church over, and they're having a sleepover, same age, all of us, nine years old, and they started praying in the living room with her family, and that little girl received the Holy Ghost in that home on a Friday. <laughs> We all got baptized that Sunday, I believe. 
Because we had Sunday school teachers who taught us how to pray, who taught us how to worship. We had a church that taught us how to worship. We had a pastor who preached how to pray and how to worship and what the Holy Ghost was, repentance and baptism and all that stuff. And when we saturate what it is that God's calling us to do with prayer, whether it's just teaching Sunday school or whether it's just serving widows or whether it's just cleaning the church or whatever it is, God can work in a mighty way. And we think, oh, it's just this or it's just that. It's just cleaning the church. But you can come and you can clean the church and you can pray the entire time if you want. I don't care. Take an extra four hours and pray. I don't care. Have at her. Pray over the seats. Pray over the families that sit in those seats. Bring it downstairs. Pray over those Sunday school classrooms. Pray. Saturate it with prayer. And you watch what God does. Oh, it's just this or it's just that, we think. And it doesn't matter. Whatever you, whatever God's calling you to do, if you just soak it in prayer and you just cover it in prayer, watch what God can do. Watch what happens when you take the simple thing that God is asking you to do and cover that in prayer. No, but Stephen had the simplest task. Just give food to people. We look down on people that do that now. <laughs> we go to fast food places. <laughs> They're all below us. They're just giving people food. That's what Stephen was doing. Just giving people food. We shouldn't do that, but people do. The simplest of all tasks. He was just giving out food, but he covered that in prayer and anointing and the Holy Ghost. And God was started working and God started healing people and God started doing miracles. So much so that they got angry with him. When's the last time you served so well that someone wanted to kill you? It's happened to me. <laughs> you got everyone riled up because things are happening. When prayer is a priority, serving is so much more effective. Without prayer, we can become resentful when we're serving each other. If we don't cover it in prayer, we're gonna we can get resentful with those kids, with those people, those ungrateful widows complaining about the food. We can become Resentful if we don't cover it in prayer. We can have some music. I don't know what you're going to do here, but we've got to get back to a place of prayer. When prayer is a priority, and I push this and I push it, and I'm not sorry yet, but we have focused prayer. We did it almost the whole month of January, and we push and we push. But this is what separates us from the world. We've got to get back to where prayer is a priority. If we've never been there, then we need to get there. Nothing meaningful happens in the church without prayer. We cannot allow these other things to distract us from prayer. If the church is going to grow, we can't allow these issues and other things to distract us. Prayer needs to be a priority. There was no question in the disciples' mind about whether or not they're going to have time to pray. It was about whether or not they're going to do the other things. Whatever it is that God is calling us to do, and He is, if we can cover that in prayer, prayer changes us. We 
be ineffective for the kingdom without it. And there are going to be things that come and fight for our attention. I don't know if you've ever noticed when you try to pray. That's when the phone rings. That's when you remember all those things you were supposed to do that day. That's when you notice all the things that you haven't cleaned that you need to clean. And you remember all the never forgetting things, just start to pray and they'll all come back. It's like reverse amnesia. Just remember everything. Sometimes, sometimes there'll be things in the church and sometimes there'll be things outside the church that are fighting for our focus and our attention. Where it comes from isn't what matters. The point is there will be things that fight for your attention and they will try to take you away from prayer and your calling. And when that happens, we need to remember that prayer, prayer needs to be the priority. My calling needs to be the priority. Serving is the priority. And anything that tries to distract from that needs to be removed. I hope this is making some sort of sense. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do anything or help anyone. But that God has called us to do two things within the church. Pray and serve. And if we can do this, the church will grow. The church will be stronger. The church was unified through this. The church grew through this. Literally the same thing was happening. The widows were being fed just like they always were. But now there was other people serving. There was other people doing. There was other people, Stephen and these other guys. The church started to grow even more. The issue with the church in Acts chapter 6 was the 12 were doing what they were called to do and also what the others could have been called to do. They were doing all the serving. And the church can get along like that for a while with just a handful of people doing everything. But the church is strongest when we're all serving, when we're all praying, and we're all saturating that serving in prayer. Does that make sense? So I'm not up here complaining about all the things I need to do. But there's something you want to do. Let me know. You can do it. Covered in prayer. And I don't mean just come up with more things for me to do. Sometimes people do that. You know what the church needs? This ministry, that ministry. Okay, we'll need it. Well, this was a weird one. I told you it wasn't going to be the greatest. But. We should end this obviously with prayer. But God's got something for us to do in the church. He's got two things one is pray and one is serve. I wonder if we could just take some time this, this evening and ask God to speak to us. What is it that He's asking of us? There are all sorts of things that can be done around the church. There are all sorts of things that could be done in our community. But if 
we cover it in prayer, God can do an incredible work. It's something as simple as helping people with groceries. That's all Stephen was doing. It's something as simple as cleaning. It could be something as simple as calling everyone Monday morning, thanking them for being there. I don't know. I wonder if we could ask God what it is that he's asking of us. The second thing is dedicate ourselves to prayer. If we do this together, if we pray and we serve together, everyone, this is going to impact our church. This is going to impact our world. This is going to impact our communities. There could be a Paul out there waiting for someone. Waiting for some crazy food bank employee to show them the light. You don't know. All right, I'm done. We're going to pray. Altar's open. It's up here. In case you didn't really know. But we're gonna come. We can pray. You can pray as a family if you want. Let's pray. God's got something for us. God's got a plan for us. He's asking us to pray and he's asking us to serve. If we could do these two things, the church is gonna be unstoppable. Hallelujah. Let's, let's talk to Jesus tonight. Hallelujah.